You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, good morning to you, Grace family and friends. We are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning and to join us this morning. And we are going to jump right into God's Word together. And as we do, we are filming this from a construction site right here in our community. As you can tell from the setting behind me, we are at a construction site. And yes, I'm wearing a construction hard hat. Because the story I'd like to tell you today really introduces where we are going to go in this passage as we continue our study in this amazing book of Galatians. So those of you who know some of my story, or at least have some history with me, know that my dad was a construction superintendent. So every three to four to five years, he'd get a really big job, and we would move to that community, and he would be in charge of that project, and then things would change, and we would move on to the next community, to the next job. And so this was our life. We've lived all over Oregon. And when I got into my college years, my dad offered to get me a job with his construction crew. And so I readily said, yes, what a great summer job to get on a construction crew as a laborer. It paid well, it was good hard work, and I'd get to be with my dad. So I said, yes, I'd love to do that. And so I did. I got on my dad's construction crew. But as I did so, my dad and I had a plan. And the plan was that I was going to fly under the radar because that's what we both wanted. I didn't want in any way for anyone on the construction crew to know I was my dad's son. I wanted to be treated like everybody else. My plan was to keep my head down and work hard and not call attention to myself. And of course, construction crews are not always the most forgiving. And to be the boss's son isn't necessarily a reputation that you want to have. And so my intent was to fly under the radar. So I'll never forget being on a construction site, not unlike the one behind me here, it's one of my first weeks doing this. And I'm working away and I've been given this job inside the building to take this roto hammer and to begin removing this concrete. But there were some lines that had been etched in there for me and I had to stay within those lines. And the construction foreman made it really clear, you stay in those lines or else. And so I did my very best, but as things go, as I was using this roto hammer, it slipped and I took a chunk out outside the line that I wasn't supposed to. And of course, at about this time, this construction foreman comes around the corner and walks up to me. And let's just say he was less than happy. He used a series of colorful metaphors, most, most which were four letters, to express his displeasure and then stomped away in a huff. Very upset. But about 15 minutes later, as I was continuing to, to work, he walks up to me and I stop and I look up at, him, up at him and he asked me this question and I referenced this in my sermon preview that we uploaded on Facebook earlier this week. But he asked this question and it was a question that when I answered it, completely changed the course of all my relationships on that job. And the question was this, whose kid are you? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, are you the superintendent's son? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I'm the superintendent's son. And that forever changed 
all my relationships on that job site. So if someone were to pose the same question to you, how would you answer it? Whose kid are you? Whose kid are you spiritually? Or to put it in words that Paul will use in this passage that we're looking at in Galatians, are you a child of the promise? So how would you answer that? And how would you respond to that if someone actually questioned that about you? If you said, yeah, I'm a child of God. And they said, are you sure about that? Because that's exactly what was going on in this Galatian church. Some false teachers had come into this community and they were questioning whether the people truly were children of God. And we talked about this a little bit last week with Gary Brashears in the passage that precedes the one we're going to look at here today. There are some counterfeit gospels that are out there that are still in our world today. And one of those types of counterfeit gospels is this idea of, the, of that there is a higher gospel. And it usually manifests itself in this way. You'll get a knock on your door and usually this comes with a couple people who will show up on your porch and they will say, as they initiate a spiritual conversation with you, well, we have another gospel that you need to understand. Or the gospel that you have come to understand and believe is actually incomplete. There's something higher. And what they're really saying is there's something better. Any other gospel other than the gospel in God's word is a counterfeit gospel. And so what Paul was doing is he was passionately arguing and helping the people try to see that these other gospels, especially this gospel that somehow insinuated and inferred that what they believed was incomplete, he was passionately arguing against and trying to show that that just wasn't true. And so we're going to pick up that same line of argument in this passage once again. And it surfaces this amazing and essential and foundational question of identity that you and I have to answer at some point in our lives. Whose kid are you? Are you a child of God? Are you God's kid? And so Paul, as he continues to lay the foundation for this argument that he continues to make, makes this incredibly compassionate, passionate statement to this church, this community that he so dearly loves. And this is what he says. And we'll pick up right where Gary left off last week. My dear children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. And what's so amazing about that verse and what he's describing there is more than just information. He's really talking about transformation when he talks about Christ being formed in us. Because to be a child of the promise means that you are being transformed by God's grace. In fact, those words there where it says Christ being formed in you, that word in the original language is morphe. It is the word that we get metamorphous from in our language. And what is a metamorphosis in the natural world? It is like a caterpillar 
completely transforming into this amazing, beautiful butterfly. That is the same image, the same reality that Paul uses to describe what it means to be a child of God, how his grace transforms us and changes us. So many years ago, and again, those of you who know my story know that when I was a high school student, I chose to become a child of God. I chose to receive Jesus Christ into my life as my Lord and Savior. And I'll never forget those initial weeks and months when I came home from the camp where that happened. And as I began to interact with my family of origin, and they would ask me, you know, what what changed about you? I mean, did you get religion? Because they didn't understand what had happened in me. It wasn't a phase. It wasn't something I was going to grow out of. It was not something I was ever going to leave behind or change my mind about. There was a transformation that had taken place in my life. And they noticed I was more giving than I used to be. I was more forgiving than I used to be. I was even more serving than I used to be. Guys, I remember my mom being so amazed that on my own initiative, I had cleaned my room as a teenager without being asked. Now, parents, is there any other further proof of an amazing transformation in a teenager's life than to clean their room without being asked? That's proof right there that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes people. And every teenage parent said, amen. But my life was changed. And that's Paul's entire point here. That when you come to know Jesus Christ, he transforms you. You're you're under construction. And it's not necessarily an overnight change, but it is a change that is sustaining and powerful and significant. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, in John's gospel, when he was explaining to one of the Jewish religious leaders what it meant to believe in and know God and to experience this, this transformation, he said it's, it's like being born again. You are completely changed from the inside out. And that is the message and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He literally changes us from the inside out. And that is so different from empty religion. Because you see, empty religion tries to change us from the outside in. Follow this rule. Follow this ritual. Do this. Don't do that. And yes, that changes our behavior or can change our behavior, but it doesn't change our hearts. It does not change the core of who we are. It does not change what truly needs to be changed. And that's an inside out change that only happens through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by responding to his free gift of grace that is given to us for the sake of relationship. That is the path to transformation. That is the path to life change. And that is what Paul is once again passionately and compassionately advocating for with this community of people. And it begs the question of you and I, Have you been transformed? Have you been changed by God's grace? Have you become a child of God by receiving Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior? Because the amazing thing about 
the gospel, about the good news, about God's grace, is that he does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. You cannot change your own heart. Only God can transform your heart. And so as we prepare to worship now, as we prepare to respond to this truth and this amazing reality, would you take a moment to think with me, what was life like for you before you became a child of God? What brokenness, what sinfulness, what selfishness did he rescue you from? And what has he rescued you to? Let's praise him together. Let's sing to him together. Let's worship together because of what he's done for each one of us. Thank you so much, Sarah and Nancy and Terry. That was such rich worship. And when you have responded to God's transforming grace in your life, you do want to say, it's my joy to follow your will and to do things your way. But now we're going to shift gears a little bit because Paul is shifting gears. He's just spent this time talking about passionately the transforming power of God's grace. But now he's going to craft this brilliant argument that's actually going to draw from Israel's history and draw upon the law to help those who are misusing the law to see that where they're trying to take the people, where these false teachers are trying to take everyone, is truly a dead end. It is a counterfeit gospel. So we're going to pick this up again in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. And this is what it says. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. What in the world is he talking about there? What he's talking about there is something that the hearers of this letter, the readers of this letter, would have known about because he's reaching back over 800 years into Israel's history. In fact, even further than that, over a thousand years. But they would have known this story, but many of us don't. This is a story out of history in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 16. And as Genesis 16 goes, God has singled out this man by the name of Abram at that point. God hadn't yet changed his name to Abraham. So he singles out this man, Abram, and promises to bless him. In fact, he gives Abram a number of promises. In Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 15 in particular, he says that I'm going to make you into a great nation and that all peoples will eventually be blessed through you and because of you. 
and because of your descendants and because of the ultimate descendant who will come, the one who is promised, the Messiah. But all that being said, these incredible promises have been been given to Abram. And Abram is married to Sarah. And as we come to Genesis 16, which is what Paul now is referring to and what we just read, Abram, if I've done my math right, is 75 years old, and Sarah is 65 years old, and still no kids. And so God makes this amazing promise in Genesis 15 to them. And so in Genesis 16, they're, they're waiting. And the days go by. And the weeks go by. And then the years go by. And they are still waiting. You ever waited like that? You know what it's like to wait for something that you really want? Of course you do. Probably recently. You've been waiting for a stimulus check? Maybe you get a tax refund this year and you're still waiting for that? How about all of us waiting for life to return to normal? Waiting for jobs to start back up. Waiting for the economy to right itself once again. Waiting for the opportunity to go outside in public and to do so freely. Waiting for someone other than your family or those closest to you to shake your hand or to give you a a hug. And so it goes. We understand what it is to wait. We are collectively waiting for a lot of things right now. Now imagine waiting for these things year after year after year, 10 years, 10 years since God has promised them that they are going to have a child, let alone descendants, and they're still waiting. And my friends, they are not getting any younger. And so time goes by and they decide to take things into their own hands and to make things happen on their own. And so in that culture, In the ancient Near East, there was a practice that was culturally acceptable. And it went something like this, that if for some reason you were not able to have children of your own, then your bondservant, your slave, could sleep with your husband. And if she became pregnant, that child would technically become your child. If it was a boy, it would become your son. And so Sarah directs Abram to go do just that. Now, there's all sorts of layers to this. Culturally acceptable during the time? Absolutely. Biblically acceptable, especially with what we know that God's word says? Well, no. No, God's design for marriage has always been one man and one woman in a covenant lifelong commitment to one another. And so multiple wives, even this practice that we're talking about, that's, that's not what God intended But this is a story of God using brokenness to somehow accomplish his purposes. But as we think about what's going on here, Abram and Sarah are so relatable because what would it be like to wait so long for this promise of God that doesn't seem to be coming true? Wouldn't any one of us be tempted to take matters into our own hands? And then then there's this, this pain of infertility. And it is not my intention to add to any of your pain 
for those of you who are walking through this or who have walked through this. Infertility is its, its own pain and its own heartache. And maybe there are some of you who have wanted to have kids and for whatever reason, maybe you never got married or what have you, you can't. But whatever the case, what we have to understand and appreciate is in that culture, not only was there this pain of infertility, but there was a tremendous amount of shame that came along with it. Because in that culture, it was assumed that if you couldn't have a child, it wasn't just a physical problem, it really was a you problem. And therefore, you really, as a woman in particular, had no purpose to your life if you couldn't have kids. So there was an intense desperation that came along with this waiting. And so they take matters into their own hands. Abram sleeps with Hagar, and she does become pregnant, and Ishmael is born. And from then on, there's this tremendous tension, this strife, this animosity, this hostility between Sarah and Hagar. And then 10 years go by with things like this. And now, now Abraham is 100 years old. And Sarah is 90 years old. And God fulfills his promise. Sarah becomes pregnant, a 90-year-old woman. And she gives birth to Isaac. And so now Abraham has two sons. Isaac the child of the promise, and Ishmael, the child who was born through the means of Abram and Sarah, a child born in the natural way, to use some of the language that Paul has used. And so now Paul draws upon this illustration, and now what we just read begins to make a little bit more sense. Because he says these these two kids, these two sons, represent something here. That they represent people. And really they represent ways of relating to God. And so let's go on to see how Paul applies this. He goes on to say, Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh, and he's talking about Ishmael here, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. He's talking about Isaac here. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. So therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So what is he saying here? He's making an incredible statement about identity. This is all about identity. Children of the promise are those who live out their true identity. And this had huge importance for the Jews and really for all of the ancient, ancient Near Eastern cultures. Genealogy was everything. It was how you settled legalities. It was how you determined property. It was how you deter- determined heirs and the transfer of those kind of things. Genealogies were hugely important. And basically what Paul is saying here is he's putting a question to the Galatians. So which child are you? Which son are you? Are you the child or the son of the promise? Or are you the child or the son of the slave woman? Because that identity absolutely matters. 
In fact, how you live your life is what determines and shows, really, I should say, which son you really are. And so the question he presents to them, which I'm sure was profoundly offensive to some of them, for it to be inferred that they were children of the slave woman, is a very practical question, and it's a question that we have to do business with. Whose kid are you? Which child are you? Are you a child of the promise? Or are you a child living in slavery to sin and brokenness? Well, that question is answered in many ways by how you live your life. How do you treat the people in your life? How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your kids and grandkids? How do you treat those around you? How do you prioritize your time, your money, your your resources? How do you treat yourself? Isn't that interesting? You know, like many of you in this shelter-in-time season that we're in, My wife and I have been doing a lot of projects around the house and we've been doing all sorts of stuff. We're basically repainting most of the interior of our house right now. We're like on to project number four and it's a a big one. And I was painting this wall and I reached down and I just, I spilled some paint and I made quite a mess actually, in fairness. And the first thing I said was, man, that was stupid. And I thought, wait a minute, what am I? What am I saying to myself? And my friends, this is more than just psychobabble or, or feel-good positivity. Because by way of example, in Proverbs 27, excuse me, Proverbs 23, verse 7, it says, at least in the King James Version, as a man thinketh, so he is. And how we see ourselves absolutely matters. Not only in how we talk to ourselves and the language we use, but how we relate to other people. It always comes back to identity. Do you remember what Gary Brashear so powerfully and necessarily reminded us of last week? That our identity as God's child is the most important identity in our life. It supersedes all other identities. And that's so important for us to remember because, again, it's so practical and meaningful for our lives because living as a child of the promise means we embrace our freedom. We live it out because of who we are, because of this identity that doesn't change through circumstance or difficulty or failure or hardship. Our identity is rooted in the promises of God. And in the reality of what God has done for us. And so what Paul really puts together here is this contrast. Did you notice as we were reading these verses, all the comparisons? Two mothers, two covenants, two cities, two sons. He's very deliberately saying, which one are you? Who are you? Because really what he's talking about are two pathways to God. And one actually isn't a pathway to God. It enslaves us. And the real pathway to God 
always frees us. You see, the pathway that enslaves us says, well, what can you do for God? You know, how can you be a better person? How can you do this, not do that? Subscribe to that ritual, embrace that religion, and that is the message of empty religion. What can you do for God today? Versus the freedom that comes from experiencing the transforming grace that only comes through right relationship with Jesus Christ that says, what has God done for you? You see, living as a child of the promise, living the gospel of Jesus Christ is always a response to what he's already done for you. One pathway empowers us. It causes us to choose to depend on God, to actually trust and believe his promises, to wait on his timing, to do things on his terms because we choose to depend on him and believe him for what he says versus what happens in Genesis 16 when Abram and Sarah take matters into their own hands and they try to make things happen on their own. There's this contrast here of adding Jesus to your life or making him your life. And this is, again, so practical and so important for us to get our hands around because this has absolute bearing on how we stir into our attitudes, our actions, our appetites, and how we enable those to not enslave us, but to find freedom in those. Because you see, my friends, you're identity, my identity, is the source of our freedom. And that freedom comes from a new heart. Because if we have received Jesus Christ into our lives, if we have responded to his transforming grace, then we've been given a new heart. Which means we're not just able to change our behavior, we're able to change our attitudes, our motives, our values, Because God is allowed to come in through the power of his Holy Spirit to begin to conform us and make us into a child of the promise, into his kids. And therefore, that begins to change everything. And so, my friends, the bottom line is, we're no longer slaves. You do not have to be a slave to your appetites, to your actions, to your addictions, to your attitudes. You have a power through the Holy Spirit, through the new heart that's been implanted in you by the transforming power of God's grace to live and own your freedom. And therefore, you should accept no counterfeits. You shouldn't settle for anything less than the freedom that only comes through Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. And we're going to sing about that truth now, and we're going to celebrate that truth now, and we're going to live that truth now. So who are we? We are exactly who God says we are, just like we just sang. We are children of the promise because of what God has done for us through Jesus. He has lavished his grace upon us 
so that we can become transformed, so that we can have a new identity, so that we can have hope, so that we can be children of the promise. And that is exactly what we are. We are who God says we are. And at the heart of this story is the reality that this is a God who always keeps his promises. He always does what he says he will do. And this truly is your story and mine. One of my most favorite verses in this passage is Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. We haven't read this yet. I skipped over it deliberately because this is in part where this becomes our story. This is actually a quote that Paul uses out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. This was written over 800 years before Jesus was even born. And this is what it says, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now this was originally spoken to, written to, the Jewish nation some 800 years earlier when they were in exile. But Paul reaches back for this and grabs it and basically says that we are children of the promise because the promises that were given to Abraham that were passed on through Isaac that eventually were fulfilled in Jesus coming, doing what he said he was going to do, God honoring his promises, were basically Abraham's spiritual kids. That's why this is your story. You are a child of the promise because of what God has done for each one of us. And one of the promises that this amazing God gives us is that he's always at work. He's always advancing his kingdom. And I think once again, we need to remind ourselves of that and own that and believe that. Because in this season that we're in, it's an awful lot of bad news. In fact, as you can tell from the setting behind me, we're recording this at a hospital where so many people have been sickened by this virus and where many are losing the battle for their lives. And yet there is hope even in the midst of that kind of tragedy. I'd like to read you a story that was recently sent to me by one of our folks who calls Grace home. This is a true story. And this is from the country of Italy. And this is a remarkable story of the work of God and the hope that we can have in God, even in the midst of a season like this. This is what this says. This is from a guy by the name of Dr. Julian Urban. He's a 38-year-old physician who serves in a hospital in Lombardy, Italy. And this happened just a couple weeks ago. This is what he says. Never in my darkest nightmares did I imagine that I would see and experience what has been going on in Italy in our hospital the past three weeks. The nightmare flows and the river just gets bigger and bigger. At first, a few patients came and then dozens and then hundreds. Now, we are no longer doctors, but sorters who decide who should live and who should be sent home to die. 
though all these patients paid Italian health taxes throughout their entire lives. Until two weeks ago, my colleagues and I were atheists. It was normal because we're doctors. We learned that science excludes the presence of God. I always laughed at my parents going to church. But nine days ago, a 75-year-old pastor was admitted into the hospital. He was a kind man, and he had serious breathing problems. He had a Bible with him and impressed us by how he read it to the dying as he held their hand. We doctors were all tired, discouraged, psychologically and physically finished. But when we had time, we listened to him. We had reached our limits. We could do no more. People were dying every day and we were completely exhausted. We had two colleagues who had died and others who had become infected. We've realized that we are beyond what man can do, that we need God. And we started to ask for help from him. We do this whenever we have a few free minutes. We talk to each other and we cannot believe that though we were once ferocious atheists, we are now daily in search of peace, asking the Lord to help us continue so that we can take care of the many sick. Yesterday, the 75-year-old pastor died. Despite having had over 120 deaths here in three weeks, we were destroyed. He had managed, despite his condition and our difficulties, to bring us a peace that we no longer hoped to find. The pastor went to the Lord, and soon we will follow him if matters continue like this. I haven't been home for six days. I don't know when I ate last. I realize my worthlessness on this earth, but I want to use my last breath to help others because I am happy to have returned to God while I am surrounded by the suffering and death of my fellow men. My friends, this amazing God is at work and that's why we can have hope. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises and his promises are true and they are real and we can anchor ourselves to them. This God is the God of hope and that's why this is your story and it is mine. Who are we? Whose kid are we? We're God's kids. We are children of the promise because he is the God who is the great promise keeper. And I'd like to end our time with these final words, these words of identity that are true for us who truly are children of the promise because we've trusted and believed in and received Jesus into our lives. This is, if you'll remember, what Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29 says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Whose kid are you? Whose kid am I? I am a child of the promise. And so because that is true, we are now called to go live like it, to go live like him and live 
for him. So may God bless you. May God strengthen you. May God be with you as you go and do just that. Lord, thank you for this sweet time of worship and time in your word that we've had together. Thank you that you are the God of hope. You are the God who keeps your promises. You are the God who rescues us from our brokenness because of your grace. You give us a new identity. You give us new hope and purpose, and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Go live for him, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.